I think these first three days have been a real challenge for the media, and I suppose it's not all that profound to say it, but people want to see justice being done, and of course that's why the media are there in the courtroom, and people expect to see the media play their part in that, but at the same time, a lot of people don't want to hear all over again about the crimes. They don't want to see much of the guilty man, and you know, after all that, uh, as you, you were talking about earlier, restricting the mention even of his name, uh, let alone his image earlier on. It is a bit of a shock to see those images in court, you know, lingering on him, uh, seeing as we've been effectively kind of shielded from that for, for quite a time. And to complicate matters, I suppose, on particularly on day one, there were actually newsworthy details that were revealed because part of the um, the media provisions is that the um, the opening statements can be uh, played by the media when the time is right. And the Crown Prosecutor Barnaby Hawes was saying that Tarrant planned to burn down the mosques. He was heading for another one in Ashburton. This is stuff we didn't know until that uh, appeared in that statement of fact. So, you know, there's also these kind of, um, I guess, legal novelties, um, such as him possibly becoming the first person to face life uh, sentence without parole. For most people, I think... They prefer the the focus to really be on justice being done and and the victims. And with that in mind, on Monday, so summing it up for people watching the 6 o'clock news, I thought it was interesting that News Hub at 6 tried to kind of ease viewers into it um, with reference to the victims at the top uh, like this. Kia ora, good evening. We start with our strongest of warnings tonight because the court has heard harrowing details of our worst mass murder. The March 15 terror attack carried out by Australian Brenton Tarrant on two Christchurch mosques. Outside, snipers guarded the courthouse, while inside, victims and their families had their chance to speak to the terrorist directly. One telling him, we are not broken, we are united. You have done that, and I thank you for that. Yes, yeah, so there I think News Hub was pointing out this was going to be distressing, difficult for people, pointing that out right at the start, but making sure that, you know, the victims in their statements were at the top of the coverage and indeed as the backdrop when Mike McRoberts was saying that were images of, of the victims, you know, some of the 51 people who, who died that day uh, last year. So I think, you know, that, that is done with the appropriate respect, putting the, the, the victims front and centre. And Colin, are the media free to show whatever they like from the court? Well, no, and and more to the point, they can't do it when they might want it as well. So um, it was interesting, I thought, that Judge Manda, who's the the judge in in Christchurch in the court, earlier this month issued a minute to the media that that Anand mentioned outlining the restrictions. And quite a lot of that, I think, is pretty clearly shaping the reporting we're getting, particularly the broadcast stuff. Justice Manda actually in that made a point of praising journalists for their professionalism uh, at all stages of... um, of the process so far, which was, which was, I think the media would have appreciated that. But he also said, look, the court is aware of the need to take steps uh, to minimise the re-traumatisation of uh, victims and their families and to avoid the hearing causing uh, potential further harm. So there, that's appointed to the fact that they were worried about him possibly grandstanding or making gestures that could be, um, you know, seized upon by the media. So a lot of the restrictions are to do with that. As, as Anand said earlier... Uh, the judge said there would be no live reporting of that hearing and only um, in the breaks, uh, so in the adjournments at midday and then at the end of the sessions as well. There are only certain parts where the defendant can be filmed. Um, that's giving evidence uh, the first 15 minutes of the sitting day. There's only one videographer and one still photographer permitted in the courtroom. So what people are seeing is all coming under a pool arrangement and that's going um, overseas as well. So quite a lot of what goes on in the court cannot be filmed. 
And as Anand mentioned earlier, uh, the victim impact statements, that's entirely up to them. So they have an automatic right to elect not to be even identified, let alone have their, their statements recorded. And I think Anand said 63 did. So most of them um, were keen for other people to be able to see and hear uh, what they had to say. And in regard to the coverage itself, media coverage, are the rules the same for those media who are here or representative of those overseas? Yeah, and that's another interesting point too because there was a lot of interest. Um, A lot of media organisations from overseas applied to be here, assuming I think that they'd be able to fly their reporters in, report on the ground, interview people, and their coverage could have been quite different back in their home countries. But in the media arrangements, uh, the judge was uh, pretty firm that all uh, normal laws, including contempt of court, subjudice, um, and those provisions on not reporting things live and not accessing the footage, even if they've got it, because that pulled footage, uh, streamed footage that even uh, families who can't be in the court are allowed to see, uh, overseas media are allowed access to that stream. But the minute from the judge says uh, the media companies overseas must agree to all those conditions of New Zealand law as if they were enforceable in the country in which they operate. So that's quite a big deal. So you won't have that situation where, for example, you know, the Daily Mail that might like to seize on some of the more newsworthy or, you know, sensational or even gruesome um, details and evidence might kind of blurt those out online in a kind of live blog style. Uh, They can't do that. They've got to abide by those rulings uh, or uh, they will find their access to um, that material switched off. I was actually impressed, though, with what I have seen of most foreign reporting of this. I did mention the Daily Mail there who did do, um, you know, talking about victims unleashing their fury and some of those victim impact statements that they were referring to in the piece were actually fairly measured and certainly not, um, you know, furious or anything like that. But picked out one bit. This is from a video that BBC uh, News made with someone who gave a victim impact statement today. In fact, this is Hamia Tuyan, who lost her husband in the attacks um, and she travelled from Singapore for the sentencing. beginning I refused to write a victim impact statement because you know he would read it and I wouldn't want him to be satisfied with what he has turned our life into. Why fan his narcissism by giving him the attention and playing to his agenda but at the end of the day it is up to us victims to use this opportunity to fit it to our agenda. That was just a part of a longer video it was about three minutes long that they'd filmed with her. Um, and again, if their reporters were here, I'm sure they would have sat down if they got permission and done it face to face, but they had to do it over some video link. And you know, that's where the soundtrack comes from as well, which, um, you know, to be honest, I could give or take the, the musical backdrop. I think the words are effective enough. But it was interesting listening to her victim impact statement today. As she said that she hadn't made her mind up what to say. And in fact, her statement was quite a lot angrier than she was in her video where she talked about not letting her feelings of you know anger or negative feelings about Tarrant to interfere with you know the things she really wanted to focus on which was you know her own family and her husband. So very difficult for them and I have to say I was very surprised to see the perpetrator's face for the first time around the sentencing because every report that we've seen here it's been blurred out. Yeah, it, like I say, it was really a shock, and also those lingering shots that that seized on him. And in fact, listening to your early interview with uh, Osner about the Norwegian experience, I mean, I'd interviewed um, Espen Egil Hansen was his name. He was the editor and still is of Norway's biggest paper, Aftenposten. And at the time when this was an issue, we thought there'd be a trial. It's like, how should we 
handle this as the media. Because uh, remember, our media all got together and agreed protocols such that there wouldn't be amplification of any terrorist or white supremacist message. And a lot of people felt, actually, that's not the right thing to do. That's the media en masse self-censoring. And that was quite a debate. became a moot point when he pleaded guilty, of course, and now we've got a sentencing and not a trial. But Espenegel Hansen from Afton Posten in Norway said, look, don't be afraid of it. Breivik in Norway did you know, seize on the opportunity to grandstand, and a lot of people really didn't like it. But Espen Egil Hansen said, actually, anyone who watched uh, substantial parts of the trial saw him as a really diminished figure. The bravado, you know, disappeared, and he was shown to be, you know, isolated, a little frightened, and that actually they felt it was quite effective for him to be seen like that and not hidden away. So, yeah, two schools of thought on that, I guess. Oh, well, to the election now, and election content's coming thick and fast. I'd almost forgotten it was it was on its way, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, it's going to be a month later, which is kind of interesting because a lot of this uh, special content now has, um, you know, to stretch out a little bit to uh, to middle of October. Um, TVNZ, incidentally, just today confirmed that it's basically shifted all its um, plans for live debates uh, back a month as well. So the first one on 22nd of September, the leaders' debate, and the last one will be the 15th of October, so not long before um, polling day itself. There are, there have been, and I've been quite impressed with it, quite a lot of special content for the election. And I'll give special mention here to um, Magic Talk Radio. They launched uh, a special program every Sunday, which I've been listening to called Road to the Election. They began that, I think, on the 2nd of July. So when, when they got the news that the election's now going to be pushed out all the way back to middle of October, uh, I wonder if they regretted kind of having gone early. No, um, no, they would have liked going early because it uh, means continuation of the gig. Yeah, I suppose so. And no shortage of politicians are willing to be on, of course. In fact, they had a quite an interesting interview. The first one of those I caught was with the um, teenage candidate for the National Party in Palmerston North, who uh, ended up in trouble because of, you know, what some of his friends were up to in his um, Facebook pages and, and years gone by and so on. And he he was shielded, I believed. I, th- I thought the party didn't want him actually talking to national media. But he gave quite an interesting interview where, you know, he did fess up to that stuff. And for someone of just 18 years of age, he was actually um, quite a uh, confident and interesting communicator. Um, but there's plenty more other stuff. RNZ's election podcast, Caucus, is back. Stuff has launched its own uh, podcast, uh, Tick Tick, which again will have to go another month like the others. And uh, look, the, the latest one, um, or in fact the one that came out last weekend, I thought was really interesting because it sidestepped the usual kind of headline-making political campaign stuff and took a look at the issue of you know whether we should be worried about foreign interference in our election. Of course, we've seen it in the UK and the US and so on. The hosts of this are Adam Dudding and Eugene Bingham at Stuff, and uh, I'd like to play a bit of that now because they discovered that actually some New Zealand media outlets have uh, been brought back from the dead. Apparently last year a bunch of new New Zealand newspaper websites sprung up all of a sudden. And people were like, huh? I thought the North Otago Times stopped getting delivered in 1932. And of course, it had, because the new websites were for newspapers that had all ceased publication years, even decades earlier. Kind of like the newspaper equivalent of what happens in those Frederick Forsyth novels where the bad guys get passports in the names of dead people. Exactly. So there was a sudden online resurrection of... The Wellington Independent, the Tablet, and the North Otago Times. (laughs) 
Could have, could have done without the kazoo noise on the end, I think, there, but it turned out um, that was actually a network putting up pro-India propaganda that created these websites from these defunct New Zealand media outlets to make it look as though, you know, legit offshore media were actually, um, you know, focusing on, on these issues that were of interest in painting India in a positive light. So, really? Yeah, yeah, it's all getting a bit weird in some parts of the, of the election. Very strange indeed. Now, what about this? the whole truth? What's that about? Yeah, that's uh, another um, stuff... Effort. This isn't a podcast, it's actually an online thing where they claim to, it's not just a fact-checking service, which we have had before with previous elections, but they claim they're doing more than just a reactive analysis of contested claims. They say, we're not going to be looking at the fibs, we won't wait for the politicians to decide what should be discussed. Uh, we'll climb into the issues and actually look at them and, and give a, a full account of each one. And actually the Herald uh, has a similar sort of thing called fact or fiction, which they just roll out whenever an issue demands it. So for example, that... Um, uh, well, outcry might be a bit of a strong word, but that issue that blew up when Labour produced an ad that happened to have Ashley Bloomfield in it uh, for a few frames, and whether that was, uh, you know, counting as sort of illegitimate politicking or not, they had a look at that. So I think these are useful services because, you know, if you have a, a seasoned political journalist attached to it um, to give you a bit of a verdict on these things, I think that's really helpful. And yeah, the stuff one is, is certainly good, the whole truth. Um, that kicked off with a, a look at, um, you know, claims about how many ICU beds. Um, New Zealand had and whether our health system was really up to scratch with that and that was just before you know the community transmission reappeared and uh, you know uh, level three for Auckland so yeah good timing and that was from uh, Stuff's Katie Kenny so I think that shows the strength in having that sort of um, long-form journalism that's able to be dropped in as and when the issue demands it. Very good, Colin. Well, thank you very much, and I'll let you get back out into the night. You've got your bike there, have you? I've got my bike, so I'll be heading heading home, and I've posted the audio and uh, made the webpage live on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website for Midweek MediaWatch. Thanks a lot.